What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, new week, new narrative. Stocks and yields are both moving higher today. Strong earnings helping on that front. But deficit concerns remain as the 10-year Treasury yield rises. We'll talk to two heavyweights in just a moment about the big issue Leon Cooperman says investors aren't paying enough attention to. See what can be done to fix it. Plus, Bitcoin crossing above 30000 for the first time in months as the SEC may allow a spot Bitcoin ETF that conveniently would also expand its own authority. Is it the right move? A former CFTC commissioner weighs in. And with Charles Schwab leading the S&P after its earnings today, we'll preview more results and get the trades for Goldman and B of A tomorrow morning. That's coming up in Earnings Exchange. Before all that, though, let's get a quick check on the markets where stocks are higher across the board, although the Dow is about 100 points below the session highs. Still a 1% gain, very similar for the S&P, up 46 or so to 43.73. The Nasdaq, a similar move. The 10-year Treasury yield, meanwhile, back above 4.7%. So it's interesting to not see that exert more pressure today. You can see the third one down, 4.716, almost exactly as the five-year. And the 30-year, nearing that 4.9% level once again. So is this good mood in stocks a positive sign into year-end, or is it all just a head fake? Joining me now to help make sense of things is Neil Hennessy. He's Hennessy Fund's chief market strategist. And Neil, it's good to have you on set. Welcome. Thank you. You know, a a nice rally day for you to be here as well. I I mean, you have to be generally pretty bullish on stocks, but do you worry at all about the economy? No, I'm bullish on stocks. I mean, the, the market's in very good shape. People forget very quickly, but if you look at last year, the market was down. All three indexes were down. This year, all three are up. But if you look behind the curtains, you're going to find out eight companies have been driving that success this year and were the drivers of the downside last year. Mm-hmm. Google, Microsoft, Netflix, Tesla, um, and, um, NVIDIA. Yeah. So eight out of 3,000 stocks are controlling the NASDAQ, which is 3,000 companies. But my understanding has been, if you peel that away, and certainly if you look at the Russell 2000, it's negative on the year. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that small is where, you know, there's more balance sheet risk, maybe less, you know, um, you know market uh, position that they can defend against company. You know, just a variety of factors that make them structurally weaker right now. Do you think there, there's a different story? Well, I've always loved the mid-cap arena. And I I like the mid-cap arena for a couple of different reasons. Number one is they can survive an economic tsunami. Hmm. They're also big enough to make an acquisition, a small-cap arena that would be accretive to them, but also big enough to be accretive to somebody else. And so, like, when you stay in the Hennessy mid-cap 30 fund, it's between $1 and $10 billion is the market cap, which is a great area to be either to be an acquirer 
or be acquired. That's interesting. We'll talk later about some of your favorite names. You like Casey's General. Uh, there's a couple of others in here. There's like three in particular, along with Casey's, Dick's, and BJ's, all of which are kind of interesting to dive into, but we'll leave that aside for the time being. You're one of the rare people in markets who has been through high inflation. You know, people like to run the numbers and say something like, you know, 20% of fund managers have been alive during it, when inflation's as high as it is now or something like that. Um, just give me some perspective when we talk about the tenure at 470 or when we're concerned about high inflation and high rates. How do you kind of sift through that based on your experience? Well, you're too young to understand, so I'll give you a little history <laughs> lesson. But back in the early 80s, we saw interest rates of prime go to 21.5%. Inflation was running at 18%. So if you had invested in a 30-year 6% bond, you were just out of luck. You were just dead. And I remember as a young stockbroker going to talk to people, they wanted to talk to me, but they were actually eating god-awful, uh, as bad as it was, dog and cat food because they couldn't uh, uh, keep up with inflation in Jeez. any way. So you look today, inflation's running three and a half percent. Inflation's somewhat stagnating a little bit. You have 7% interest rates, seven and a half percent mortgage. My first mortgage was 14 and a half or 15%. The difference was in those markets, in those times, we gave up the washing machine. We gave up going on thir out Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. We saved our money put a roof over the head for the family. In today's market, people get scared because we got used to, or at least the younger generation got used to, paying nothing to borrow. Yeah. Which it comes back to, to hit you in the end. But in, And that's why, you know, so do you think there's anything investors are missing about how this cycle could play out? In other words, when you are still kind of pretty constructive on stocks, and some of these are consumer-facing, is that because you think we're ultimately going to navigate this period better than most expect? Well, you know, everybody's been talking about a recession, but you can't have a recession if you don't have high uh, uh, unemployment. We, we can't even hire for the jobs that we have today. Plus, when you have low inflation and you have wage growth, that's good for the economy. That's good for the consumer. So at the end of the day, those two are working together that we just have to be patient. There's a lot of things going on around the world in a lot of headlines. But if you just talk in economics, companies are in very, very good shape with their cash flow, with their profits, with their expansion, their CapEx, you name it. They're in really good shape. All right. We'll circle back, like I said, with some more detail on this in a little bit. We'll leave it there for now. We appreciate it, Neil. Thanks. Neil Hennessy from Hennessy Funds. Let's turn to Washington now, where the House of Representatives is in its 13th day without a speaker. Its longest stretch since 1971, when it took 18 days to elect one. And now at least one Republican is warning of the potential need for a coalition speaker through a deal with the Democrats if the GOP can't elect someone on their own. Emily Wilkins is in Washington with the latest. Afternoon, Emily. Well, good afternoon, Kelly. Well, yes, there are some discussions about having some sort of coalition government, but before anything like that really gets underway, Jim Jordan is up at bat and he's racking up support in his bid for speaker ahead of a planned Tuesday vote on the floor. Now, there have been several members who said on Friday that they would never back Jordan and they're now coming out in support of him after Jordan and his allies spent the weekend calling up and talking with individual holdouts. Now, members have called on the conference to come 
come together. And those members include Mike Rogers, he's the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, and tweeted that he had two cordial, thoughtful, productive conversations over the last two days with Jordan. And as a result, Rogers now supports him. A Congresswoman, Ann Wagner, who is adamant she couldn't back Jordan on Friday, said she and Jordan spoke at length again this morning. She says that Jordan has laid her concerns about keeping the government open, that he's reaffirmed the need for border security and the need for consistent international support in times of war and unrest. Remember, both Israel and Ukraine are on the plate for the House of Representatives. Jordan sent lawmakers a Dear Colleague letter this afternoon promising to bring the entire conference together. Now, Republicans will meet this evening again behind closed doors. And then tomorrow at noon, it's supposed to be all out in the open. You'll see what you saw in January. Members are roll call off names and you'll see exactly who does support Jordan, who doesn't, and basically how much of a climb Jordan has left if he wants to get to that 217 to become speaker. A high stakes 24 hours. Emily, for now, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Emily Wilkins reporting. We may not have a speaker yet and a shutdown may still be looming, but Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen thinks the U.S. economy is in good shape. She told our Wilfred Frost that, quote, inflation has come down considerably and that, quote, we have about the strongest labor market we've seen in 50 years with 3.8 percent unemployment. But others aren't so upbeat. Speaking at CNBC's Financial Advisor Summit last week, billionaire investor Leon Cooperman warned that stocks will struggle to break much higher from here. And he said people aren't taking the U.S. fiscal situation seriously enough. I think uh, people on your program are not spending enough time talking about our fiscal situation. They're all focused on inflation. But I think inflation is just one part of the, the, the issue. I think that focusing on our fiscal deficit would make a lot of sense. Let's see if my next guests agree. Joining me now, Raghuram Rajan is professor of finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School and former governor of the Reserve Bank of India. And Tom Honig is distinguished senior fellow at George Mason's Mercatus Center and the former president of the Kansas City Fed. Welcome to you both. It's kind of um, delicious irony having you on together as well, because Raghu, if I'm not mistaken, it was at the Kansas City Jackson Hole Conference, where in 2007, as everyone was kind of talking happy uh, about the economy, you issued this warning that was quite prophetic at the time. And I'm curious if you have any warnings to issue now or if you think we're going to come through this just fine. Well, first, uh, it was 2005, but but it's, wow. uh, you know, uh, it's it's hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to get things right all the time. So uh, I, I don't have any uh, sense that I will be prescient. I think it's it's important to worry about a number of things all the time. And, and certainly, uh, obviously, we're worrying about inflation. We're worrying about risks in the financial sector. We seem to have calmed them with uh, the actions in March, but they were pretty significant actions. We effectively insured all uninsured demand deposits, that, that's a huge action. And of course, you just mentioned the fiscal deficit, which has gone from 4 to north of 7% in the course of one year, which is a huge expansion for what one might think of as a normal year, as a peacetime year. You haven't seen these big expansions uh, in the last so many years, except perhaps in 2009 and 2020, which were both extraordinary years. Right. And it, for, I, I'm trying to think, do I call you professor, vice chair, president? Uh, you're, you're high. <laughs> and for Tom Honig, as I turn to you, sir, you know, I, 
I thought it was quite interesting that you recently said, as, as people were concerned about what happened in March, that banks in some ways took the bait and took all the treasuries that they were encouraged to do through, uh, you know, the way our system works and are, are left with these losses. Um, so we started with concerns about the banks, but six months later, all of a sudden, it's, it's really the sustainability of the U.S. fiscal position that it's, uh, it seems could be much more worrisome. Well, I think that's right. Number one, though, on the securities that the banking industry hold, the, the Fed set up a, a facility. They're taking the, those securities and lending it against them at par value, even though they may be uh, well below their par value uh, uh, numbers. And so they've, they've kind of alleviated that part of the crisis. But I think the real issue is the Fed has decided uh, wisely, I think, to uh, end quantitative easing and begin to at least hold their balance sheet constant and, re and reduce it. And in that environment, where you have the, the, the government issuing substantial amounts of new debt uh, every month, uh, we have a huge deficit over 1.7 trillion, probably growing, uh, and you don't have the Federal Reserve buying that debt uh, any longer. That means the private sector or foreign interests have to buy all that debt. And that's why I think you see interest rates along the yield curve pushing up the 10-year up. And I think you're going to see more of that because this debt has to be financed. And if the Fed isn't going to take it, uh, the private sector will demand more of a return for the for the risk they're taking the, the, uh, as they go forward. And, and I think that's very important to keep in mind. And that factor, uh, I think, is a warning sign for the future of the economy. We've had a really good growth period, but now we have uh, all this fiscal expansion coming to uh, hopefully an end. Uh, and now the the higher interest rates, I think there's a lot of pressure coming forward uh, on the economy and on the Fed because they'll be pressured to uh, reverse their quantitative tightening if things start to slow uh, very much. Right. And, Rog, you know, today we sit here and, and stocks are higher and earnings look decent and we think, OK, it's the economy. That's why bond yields are moving higher. Do you think that's why they're moving higher or do you think that it has to do with the deficit picture? Well, I think it has to do first with what uh, uh, Tom just said, that uh, this, the buyers are simply not there as they were before. The Fed is out of the picture. Foreign buyers, Japan is slowly backing off from buying treasuries, and China stopped some time back. So, so there is a concern uh, of who is going to buy these long-term treasuries. Also, uh, certainly the Treasury has to issue a lot more paper to fund a much larger deficit than last year, especially because tax uh, intake hasn't been strong this year. Uh, and the second, I, I think, most uh, worrisome aspect is the Treasury also has to issue longer term. Uh, who is going to buy this duration? And that's partly why uh, interest rates are moving up at the longer end. Last point, uh, as the Fed takes longer to quell uh, this bout of inflation, as it stays higher for longer, clearly even longer term rates have to be yet longer to give people the reason to buy them, to, to give them the uh, necessary uh, premium. And so all this is pushing up rates at the long end. And of course, we'll uh, act to slow down the economy. That's what the Fed wants, but it's not something the ordinary person likes. No, and, and Tom, if I may, the ways to kind of stop worrying about this would be if we thought the deficit was going to uh, quickly close, that this was just some one-off, if we thought that bond yields were going to soon drop back to, you know, historically low levels, um, and maybe they will if, if a recession hits. Well, they, they will. Perhaps if a recession hits, the demand for credit will decline, number one. Number two, if a recession hits, there's a real 
likelihood uh, that the Fed will decide to re-engage in quantitative easing, not just lower rates, but to buy more of these bonds that are that are going to be coming, and that'll bring it down. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that's going to invite uh, even higher inflation. So they'll lose their their objective of getting inflation back to two percent, and so that's the trade-off that the central bank has to deal with. And I think it's a it's it's one that's theirs to encounter uh, in the not too distant future. If things do in fact slow, as I suspect they will. Is that does that present a in a way, Raghu? That would be the best case scenario because they could both meet their objective for helping the economy while conveniently helping to bail out the government in some way. Um, if for some reason we don't see bond yields drop and or they can't restart quantitative easing or what have you, and yields continue to move higher the way they have the past couple of weeks. You have to wonder what other good options policymakers have. Yield curve control? Well, uh, I think they've been aggressive enough uh, in these innovative uh, sort of monetary approaches. I think they should stick to the knitting and do the sensible thing. If if the economy slows, they will have to start cutting interest rates at some point. Of course, uh, that take uh, that assumes that at the same time inflation will fall. I think the the key concern also going forward, if in fact there's a recession, is we are we will be entering a recession with a huge fiscal deficit. Right. Uh, recessions typically widen the deficit even more. So there is a longer term concern about debt sustainability. It's still, it's not a big issue for the U.S. today, but it is something that we should start paying more attention to over time. Right. They worsen the deficit. Uh, they raise the debt levels and, and that ha- that event has, they lower revenues. The Barry Eichengreen paper, Tom, at this year's Kansas City Fed kind of runs through all the possible options to get out of this, including inflation and, and you name it. And the, he kind of couldn't come up with an answer. And it wasn't just for the U.S. It was for a lot of advanced economies. That's absolutely right. I think the most serious effort that should take place today is the Congress needs to address this growing debt and deficit problem, because if they don't do that, it put more pressure on the central bank to print money and to re-invite inflation or to suffer a very serious recession as the if the Fed decides, no, we're not going to uh, inflate the economy. We're going to keep uh, rates high. And that means uh, financing becomes more difficult for the private sector. So I, I think the real solution lies with Congress. You've got to take care of this debt and this deficit in the long run, or we are all going to suffer a, a much slower growing economy in the years to come. Raghu, what would you add to that? And I know that over in the UK, I think this parliament is trying to push through some of the biggest, um, I forget exactly how it's done, but effectively a spending cut or one, it might be a tax hike, one of the biggest in history. So these are very politically unpopular maneuvers and risky ones. I can't add to what Tom has said. He said it perfectly. But the only uh, you know point, if if I had to make one, would be you know we've got a lot of spending also coming down the pipeline. All these uh, subsidies that are being given to manufacturing, whether the chip factories or the battery factories, we have to take that into account also as something that's going to add to the deficit over the next few years. So yes, we have to pay attention to the deficit, and we have to try and bring it into normal uh, into a normal situation sooner rather than later. All right, gentlemen, thank you both. Appreciate you laying it out. I'm not sure there are any answers, but we're just laying it out, and we hope to bring you back soon. We really appreciate your time. Raghuram Rajan and Thomas Honig. Coming up, Bitcoin briefly topped 30000 today for the first time in more than two months. This after the SEC has appeared to drop its fight against a spot Bitcoin ETF. What's the next step for regulators, and what does it all mean for investors? We'll ask former CFTC chair Tim Mossad next. 
Plus, it's Consumer Week here on The Exchange, and with higher rates hitting spending from every angle, we'll kick things off with a look at credit cards. Will consumers keep footing the bill? And if not, what are the market's most exposed areas? As we head to break, here's a broad look at the indexes. We're near session highs. Dow's up 349. Russell 2000s are leading the way with a one and two-thirds percent gain. And the 10-year note a little bit off session highs around 4716. We're back after this. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. Bitcoin jumping as much as 8% earlier today, crossing 30,000. As the path to a spot Bitcoin ETF looks clearer now, it is off the highs. We're just over 28K at the moment. But Bernstein today writes that Bitcoin's growing legitimacy and strong value proposition now put it on par with gold as a safe haven trade. But illegitimate and criminal uses continue to plague crypto. The Wall Street Journal reporting that groups linked with Hamas have raised millions of dollars through crypto, even as the Israeli government reportedly pushes to freeze accounts. Here to discuss these cross-currents, former CFTC chair and current Harvard Kennedy School Research Fellow, Timothy Massad. Uh, Tim, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It, it, bring me up to speed on whether you're thrilled, excited, or horrified at the idea of, of having a, a spot Bitcoin ETF out there. <laughs> well, I guess it was coming. I had hoped, frankly, a couple of years ago that the SEC might take advantage of the position it was in, which was being challenged because it had approved the futures ETFs, but hadn't approved the cash ETFs to say, well, we'll approve the cash ETFs as long as the prices come from exchanges which meet the following standards. And mm. it would have been a backdoor way of regulating uh, the platforms by saying, well, you got to prevent fraud and manipulation and wash trading, and you got to have transparency and so forth. Well, they didn't do that. So they were kind of in a box after the recent decision. I think the question is, you know, does this bring more people into the market? Uh, does it change uh, where people trade? You know, right now they do trade primarily on the exchanges. Very few people trade on chain, right? They go to trading platforms. Mm -hmm. So does it cause people to buy the ETF rather than actually buying Bitcoin through the through a trading platform just because maybe they'll be um, easier to get in and out, more liquid? We'll see. It's kind of ironic though, because, you know, Bitcoin was supposed to, eliminate our reliance on large intermediaries, create peer-to-peer -peer trading. And here we have, you know, some of the largest intermediaries of the world, like BlackRock, offering uh, really a derivative of, of Bitcoin totally. on a centralized exchange. Yes, and I, I'm sure the purists would, would kind of be rolling their eyes, even while they're thrilled if it helps make Bitcoin prices go higher, as it appears to be doing. Right. How much of this is politics? So, it, uh, you know, some DC observers have made the point that this does 
kind of in a backdoor way bring Bitcoin under the SEC's remit because they regulate ETFs. And ultimately, regulators don't want to lose power. And this is a way of maintaining it. Well, perhaps that. I think they were really just in a position after the recent court case where they don't they didn't really have any options. You know, they had tried to resist uh, approving the cash ETFs uh, because they were concerned about, you know, the the degree of um, of oversight in the cash market. Um, so I think that's why they did it. I think they'll continue, though, to pursue the enforcement actions challenging whether uh, a lot of these tokens are securities. Obviously, they've, they've acknowledged that Bitcoin is not. But we still have that issue of, you know, which tokens are securities and how do we bring regulatory oversight to these platforms? Mm -hmm. It remains the, the same issue. Right. So does it now kind of ring fence Bitcoin and, and sort of say, OK, that this can move forward and kind of be mainstreamed, all the rest of it TBD? And what exactly is the regulatory frame, the sort of ad hoc regulatory framework that has now sprung up? Well, you know, I think we're still in a very muddled area because they don't have general oversight over these trading platforms, even with respect to Bitcoin trading, right? I mean, neither the SEC nor the CFTC technically has the power to tell Coinbase, for example, you have to follow these standards in the trading of Bitcoin. Now, former SEC Chair Jay Clayton and I advocated just that. We said the SEC and the CFTC should just get together and and develop standards and say these apply to any platform that trades uh, Bitcoin or Ether, that would have gotten you the entire market. And just, just create a baseline of protection. We can fight about you know, which tokens really should be treated as securities. Uh, we can continue to fight about that, but we really need some basic investor protection in this market. Would you have any concerns? So if this then uh, opens up other people, and again, maybe maybe crypto is an interesting asset class, those not in it yet, and, and maybe it's not. But let's just say that people want to mess around with it and they start dabbling with spot Bitcoin ETFs and what. So what's the biggest risk? You know, if it were a family member of yours, would you say, hey, just make sure you don't do X, Y, Z? Or at this point, is it we all are pretty familiar with the product? This is just a sort of highly efficient liquid way to trade it. And there's going to be a handful of providers and there's really nothing more to it. Well, let me first say I don't give investment advice and I don't make predictions, but I would <laughs> guess I would say two things. One is it's extremely volatile in price, or three things. It's extremely volatile in price. It's a highly unregulated market, uh, and therefore you just have to be aware of that. There could be, you know, there's estimates that say there's a lot of wash trading where people are pumping up the price, pumping up the volume uh, through transactions uh, with themselves. So it's unregulated. And of course, you know, it's it's an asset that doesn't really have any cash flows behind it. It's a lot different than investing in stocks or bonds or real estate or other things. All right. Digital gold, uh, you know, that's what they're they're still going to make that case. And now or soon, I should say, and by the way, how soon do you think we could see a product now uh, come to market? Are we talking days? I, I don't know. I, I don't think it'll be very long, but I, I can't really handicap that. Totally. All right. Timothy Massa, thanks again for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Former chair of the CFTC. Coming up, we've got 11% of the S&P reporting this week, including the rest of the big banks and plenty of other financials. We'll look at four companies set to report before the bell in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's the sector heat map. As you heard earlier, all 11 sectors are in the green today as the 10-year note, by the way, heads back south towards 470. 
Carter, worth pointing out the 75 S&P stocks most vulnerable to selling pressure are spread across every sector except energy, which has held up well this year. And utilities were, get this, three quarters of the sector hit a 52-week low this month. Half of them are already 10% above those levels. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. The federal judge overseeing the Trump election interference case in D.C. imposed a partial gag order on the former president today. Judge Chanya Chutkan ruled that parties, all parties, are prohibited from making statements that publicly target special counsel Jack Smith, his staff, the judge's staff, or any other court personnel. The judge noted that statements about the families of those individuals are also prohibited. The Trump campaign called the ruling a, quote, absolute abomination. An International Red Cross spokesperson told NBC that the aid organization is meeting with Hamas senior officials face-to-face in an effort to access Israeli hostages being held in Gaza by militants. The Red Cross is demanding the hostages be released immediately, and they are asking for access to check on their well-being. The humanitarian group has not released details of the meeting. And Russia's foreign minister is heading to North Korea this week. The visit comes just days after the United States claimed that North Korea had delivered a thousand containers of military supplies to Russia to support the country's war effort in Ukraine. Russia's foreign ministry said Sergei Lavrov will be in North Korea on Wednesday and Thursday. Kelly, back to you. See you in a bit. All right, Tyler. Thanks. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, consumer discretionary is the best performing sector today. VF Corp, Etsy, Raw Stores, and Bath and Body Works are the biggest gainers. Is this a sign of a comeback or a last hurrah? Firms like KeyBank are starting to wave red flags about some retailers. We'll discuss that next. And as we head to break, take a look at shares of News Corp hitting their highest level in a year and a half. Jeff Smith's activist fund Starboard Value has reportedly built a stake in the company and is looking to push for strategic and governance changes. He'll join David Faber for an exclusive interview tomorrow morning at 9.45 a.m. Eastern. I won't miss it. You shouldn't either. We're back after this with a Dow of 306. Welcome back. It's the first installment of our special consumer coverage, the S&P consumer discretionary sector falling nearly 5% since that last Fed meeting in September. KeyBank out with a note today warning that rising delinquency rates, tighter bank lending, and higher interest rates could be pointing to more risk ahead for consumer credit. According to Bankrate, the average credit card rate is now nearly 21%, a record high. For more, I'm joined by Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate. He's here on set with me along with Hennessy Fund's Neil Hennessy. We talked about this earlier, Neil, but you've brought your top consumer picks. So welcome to you both. Ted, first of all, give us the landscape. Um, you know, It seems like one day we hear that the consumer is still strong by a variety of metrics, and then the next day the picture doesn't sound as good. This is the nature of the economy right now. Yeah, we have all these ups and downs. I thought bank earnings recently were pretty positive about the state of the consumer and delinquencies. And I feel like normalization is a term that people keep throwing out there, as in back to 2019 kind of levels for delinquencies after being artificially low. 
no doubt inflation and high rates are squeezing people, but I think people are hanging in there. Consumer spending's been remarkably resilient. Although consumer sentiment has been quite poor. And you see that's where the fact that inflation remains high and that their you know, real purchasing power is being eroded, that seems to still be having an impact. So why are we seeing it in sentiment? Is it next going to show up in more of the spending data? Traditionally it has, but maybe it's different this time. I know it's dangerous to say that, but I think the pandemic changed a lot of things. Look at travel and dining and experiential spending like concerts and sporting events. I mean, that's all surging right now. I think there is this kind of you only live once sort of attitude that a lot have embraced moving on from the pandemic. So people are rather compromising elsewhere. They're pulling back on physical goods, not experiences. That, Neil, is the perfect segue to talk about your picks because it's not like you're, you know, out there banging the table on Live Nation. That might be too big of a, of a, of a cap. But you're talking about consumer goods. You're talking about Dick's and Casey's and companies like that. Why? Because I think the consumer's in very good shape. I mean, if you just look at the numbers and, and, and looking at what Ted was just saying, I mean, you're talking about $17 trillion is sitting in the federal depository banks, of which are sitting in $4.5 billion or just in savings and checking accounts. There's a tremendous amount of money out there. There's a tremendous amount of money on corporate balance sheet. <clears throat> what's, what's essentially affecting the, uh, the consumer right now, if there's a problem with consumer sentiment, is just the headlines. Is AI taking over? Artificial intelligence. That's all we talk about. But, you know, when you look at it from my standpoint, it's called artificial for a reason, okay? And people really have the money to spend. That's why I like Casey's. It's so simple. It's so straightforward that they're in approximately eight states, and they're making a ton of money, and they're selling their fifth largest uh, pizza dealer in the nation. Why is it that, so when we look at, for instance, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, even Target, these are some of the worst stocks in the market this year. Is that idiosyncratic or does that have some kind of information about how the rest of these names, which are smaller but somewhat similar, should be doing? Well, I think, you know, we talk about inflation. Food inflation really took off in the last two years and it's stabilizing now, but it's not going to come down. So you can get we can get commodities to come down. But what we buy at at the grocery store is is here to stay and hopefully only goes up a couple percent a year. That's why you see the lower end stores doing much better than a higher end uh, store would do in this in this marketplace anyway. Ted, what would you be watching for as a sign the consumer is cracking or that, you know, what are some of the companies maybe exposed um, by being too much out on the, the credit card limb, for instance, if that's one of the first places people start to pull back? Credit has started to tighten a little bit, but not all that much, to be honest. I mean, Equifax reported only a 1% drop in originations for credit cards in the first six months of this year off of last year's record pace. Wow. I think the job market is a huge indicator. I mean, that's the biggest indicator of whether or not people can pay their bills. And I think back to that sentiment point, it doesn't feel great because inflation's gobbling up your wage gains. But at least the vast majority are working and making more money. And I think that's where people are keeping up. Now, not everybody. I mean, sadly, lower incomes, lower credit scores. The cracks are starting to emerge. But by and large, I think the data is more positive than the sentiment. As a final word, Neil, is there anything that you would be avoiding in this environment when you're looking through the stocks and and sort of saying, "Okay, I think this this segment of the consumer of the economy is hanging in there. Is there anything you feel a little less certain about? Well, I, I try and stay away from thema- thema- thematic 
like companies. artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah, artificial intelligence, and, and you can get into Tesla. You can get in a lot of different ones that get a cult behind them, uh, AMC, whatever, GameStop. Uh, if, you, if you buy real quality and hang on to it, you have to be patient, but you'll be able to play again. If something goes wrong. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thank you both, Neil Hennessy and Ted Rossman. Still to come, J.P. Morgan expects the household saving rate to finish the year around 4%. That's about a 20% drop from its COVID-era peak, and savings is one of Main Street's top concerns, according to new data. What employers are doing to try to address that next. As we head to break, here's a look at oil, which is now lower after the Washington Post reported the Biden administration has reached a, quote, understanding to ease sanctions on Venezuela's oil industry and return for a freer presidential election next year. It was higher. Now we're below uh, 87 on WTI. Driller Transocean taking a hit on the news, trading with the uh, commodity. Shares are down 4%, and it's the worst performer in the VanEck Oil Services ETF, the OIH. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Having enough emergency savings and paying monthly bills, get this, have unseated saving for retirement as the number one concern for workers between the ages of 21 and 64, according to a new survey. Sharon Epperson is here with more on that. And Sharon, now, just like they do with retirement, it sounds like employers are trying to step in here to help out as well. They're really trying to expand the financial benefits that they're offering, Kelly. The latest EBRI workplace wellness survey asked workers where they would put an extra $600 provided by an employer. Well, the respondents said they'd spread the money out if given the options. First funding retirement and emergency savings, then health savings accounts, college savings, and student debt repayment. Few employers currently offer emergency savings accounts, but more are recognizing the benefit to their own bottom line. When you do need that money for an emergency, you're not taking a withdrawal from your 401k plan. You're not missing a student loan payment. You're not getting evicted. You're not having your water shut off so that you can actually come to work without having to worry about all of that. The new Secured 2.0 legislation will give employers more flexibility to offer emergency savings accounts and other financial benefits in 2024, including matching student loan repayments with 401k contributions. Principal Financial CEO Dan Houston sees achieving financial well-being as an important goal for workers and employers. I can't think of any more satisfying metric to knowing, hey, my workforce, not only do they do a great job servicing my customers, but you know what? They're on a path to financial success. And studies have shown expanding financial benefits also leads to better retention and productivity. Kelly. Wow. So how do these employer-sponsored emergency savings accounts work? We, we're starting to become familiar with HSAs and all these different uh, structures. Is it like that? Well, it's similar to that. It's allowing you to put money in up to 3% of your pay hmm. into this account up to $2,500. You can take that money out monthly at least. And the first four times that you take it out in a year, there are no fees attached to it. Now, there are still things that need to be worked out, and many are saying that employers may not be able to open it for their employers or offer it January 1, 2024, but that is when this goes into effect for them to be able to do it, and it gives the opportunity for small and mid-sized businesses that may have not 
thought through how they could do this. Right. Kind of a game plan on how to and get it done. And these are investment accounts or, or it's just kind of like it's flex, an interest like bearing, a cash? It's an interest-bearing interest account. So it's not like you're putting it in investments that are high risk. Right. It's something to really help you build up your savings. Fascinating. Sharon, thank you for bringing sure. that to us. Sharon Epperson. Coming up, shares of Fire, Pfizer higher today after they cut full-year guidance on Friday due to those weak COVID sales. But today, jumping after an upgrade to buy at Jefferies, who argues that Pfizer has one of the most intriguing catalyst paths in big pharma. Shares are off the highs, up nearly 4%. We'll get another look into the sector tomorrow when J&J reports. We'll preview those results along with B of A, Goldman, and Lockheed Martin in earnings exchange. And before we head to break, check out the insurers hitting all-time highs today. Progressive, Aflac, and Arch Capital, even as uh, Jarrett Seberg at Cowan warns Washington may be just starting to look at cracking down on some of the rate hikes we've seen from the insurance group. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. Bank earnings took a breather today, but they're back tomorrow. B of A and Goldman out with results in the morning, along with J&J and Lockheed Martin. Let's get the key factors to watch and the trade on all of them with Danielle Shea, VP of Options at Simpler Trading. Danielle, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with the banks, shall we, uh, as we kind of f- get through that piece of earnings season. B of A and Goldman slightly higher today. Like last week, the street will be watching for the impact of high rates. Bank of America, in particular, the biggest unrealized loss of the biggest banks last quarter, $105 billion. Consumer also an area of focus for different reasons, though. They're reporting a rise in charge-offs and delinquencies. Goldman, of course, looking to offload its consumer lending business altogether. What would you do with these stocks? So, Kelly, when you look at Bank of America, I don't think that there's much that they can say on earnings that's going to fix this downtrend. It's still down 50% since February of last year. And when you look at earnings, they tend to do well. You can actually see that they do generally gap up and they do tend to beat their EPS estimates. But that doesn't mean it's going to change this longer term downtrend. So I think with Bank of America, you look for a short term move higher. We have resistance about $2 higher, right around 28 and a half. So I think that after earnings, after you get a nice rally, you can short it at that price point. Ooh, okay. So wait, 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 wait. Because, you know, I see people saying, okay, now that we're getting through bank earnings and that's not a risk factor for them, we can we can just ride this into to year end. But you're saying you'd actually take this opportunity to short them? Yes, with Bank of America in particular, because this one is in a long-term downtrend. However, if you look at JP Morgan, JP Morgan strong. I like that one to, for a buy to the upside. Ooh. Goldman Sachs is a little bit different here. Goldman Sachs is incredibly hit or miss on earnings. Over the course of the last seven quarters, we've seen only four beats out of them and half the time up and half the time down. But here's what I'm going to point out to traders. Goldman Sachs tends to have big moves in the week or two post earnings. So what I would rather do with this stock is I'd rather wait until the report, see how the market reacts to it, and then ride that move because this stock can tend to have some pretty big directional moves after the report. Huh, and you're not trading these as a group at all. I mean, what you said about B of A on the one hand versus JP Morgan on the other, very interesting. Okay, quickly on Johnson & Johnson, what would you do there? So when you look at Johnson & Johnson, this is a neutral range-bound stock. It hasn't gone anywhere over the span of the last year and a half. And so when you look at the increase in implied volatility we've seen going into the earnings report, I think it makes sense to sell the premium here in the options market. You have about a 3% expected move, but it normally only moves about 2%. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell the premium 
in the options market and buy it back the next day. All right, let's end on kind of a dire note with Lockheed Martin. They also report before the market opens. They're up 10% since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. It won't necessarily, obviously, impact the report tomorrow, but maybe there will be commentary on the call. Morgan Stanley is also flagging that Lockheed lowered F-35 fighter jet delivery expectations, hasn't adjusted free cash flow outlook. What's this stock say to you? So I do like the stock and I own the stock. However, I'll point out that it's lost momentum over the course of the last two quarters until the news of the conflict hit. So this stock is going to be entirely dependent on what they say as far as what this conflict is going to do to impact their bottom line. So if we get a positive move out of Lockheed Martin, you know, you'd really need to see it trade up above $14, which is the expected move, to see it continue on with this bullish uptrend. However, if it can't get up above 460, it has that downside momentum, so I would caution longs. However, I'm going to hold on to the stock, and I'm going to continue to look at this one to the upside in the long term. All right. Let me ask you, because, Danielle, the last couple of years, we've had some earnings seasons that were clear ones you were playing to the downside, others that were strong, reflecting the kind of um, way that markets have traded. You know, although it's, as we heard, the 800 days now, the S&P is exactly where it was 800 days ago. So this set up uh, for third quarter earnings, but with the key kind of year-end period uh, upon us, what's your overall feel for the market here? So my overall feel for the market here is to focus on trading in a range-bound manner, especially in the options market, because we have a situation where the VIX is up above 17, and we've had these really volatile earnings reports. And so what that means is that the implied volatility in the options is a little bit higher than normal, especially when averaging in the last eight quarters. And so that provides an opportunity for traders to come in and sell some neutral premium. I think that that's going to be the best bet with this quarter. Uh, for earnings, especially due to the way that earnings reacted last quarter. So that's primarily what I'm focusing on. Um, and then the stocks that are truly directional in nature, I will still take some directional picks. But for the most part, I think neutral is the way to go. All right. Do I dare ask about bond yields? Do you do you tip? Do you wade into those waters at all? I don't wade into those waters, but of course I do pay attention to it to see what I want to do with the overall indexes and how that's going to impact the market overall. So when you're looking at the move going into this quarter in earnings, I think that things are a little bit dicey here. You know, we've seen really range bound trade and of course we've seen those high mortgage rates. But when you're looking at that, you can also see that that's pretty extended. So I think that there's a shot for the market to actually continue trading higher here. Mm -hmm. But we have to see some better than expected results out of Netflix this week, out of Tesla, and then especially Microsoft, Google, and Meta coming up soon. If All that right. happens, we have a short squeeze potential. All right. We've perfect guidebook. Uh, Danielle, as always, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Danielle Shea. We've got a quick update on the UAW strikes. Reuters now reporting that all union represented team members at General Motors will receive an immediate wage increase after this offer is ratified. While Ford's executive chairman, Bill Ford, warned earlier today if the strike continues, it will have a major impact on the economy. The UAW has countered, saying in part, Ford should stop playing games and get a deal done. And like always, it seems like the big three are edging up about a percent today. That does it for the exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.